The title of the of the lecture is uh, is as you can see uh, the genesis account of creation and the theory of evolution. Okay, so basically uh, it seems to uh, or it may seem uh, that we are having uh, here a conflict, and actually to many Christians, but also to some Catholics, it does actually uh, look like there is a, there is a conflict here. Uh, why so? Well, because on the one hand, uh, we have the Bible, and the common literal interpretation, especially of the first chapter of the book of Genesis, which opens the Bible, uh, in this common interpretation, uh, we read or we think that we have the picture of God who is one and only creator, okay, who brought everything into existence from nothing in six days. Actually, it is not such, it is not so clear that uh, he brings uh, things into existence ex nihilo from nothing in the book of Genesis, but we don't have time uh, to spend on it. We may uh, assume that at least, uh, Indirectly, Genesis actually says that, and let's do that uh, for the uh, purpose of this lecture. Therefore, on this picture, creation is finished once and for all. It happened in six days, so all the species that are around us and were here in the past and are not here uh, nowadays, they were all created in those six days, and then nothing new, no new types of animals uh, were created. Therefore, evolutionary theory would be false, according to this reading of Genesis. Why so? Well, because the theory of biological evolution tells us that all living beings, they were not created in six days, and they were not created ex nihilo. They all came from one common ancestor a long way in the past, through the process of descent with modification. There, more than this, new species on this scheme continually come into existence. Therefore, contingent uh, beings uh, also are uh, causally engaged in processes of their origination. So the way in which new species come into existence is through other, uh, you know, uh, other organisms and also other causal influences like genetic mutations, like uh, you know the influence on the on of the environment of on populations and so forth. Okay, so you may think that those two accounts really stay or remain in conflict. Uh, to face this dilemma, I believe, and to find a reasonable answer and actually to see whether they are in conflict or they necessarily need to be in conflict, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and to think what are uh, the ways in which the church in the past already and nowadays interprets the scripture. So what interests us here is interpretations of Genesis 1 specifically, because I want to concentrate on this specific uh, account of uh, the work of six days that we find in Genesis. So. This um, this is actually one of those parts of the Bible which probably uh, had uh, uh, like the, the number of commentaries uh, throughout the history of uh, the Western tradition and uh, the tradition of uh, Judaism to Christianity is the most the number of uh, of interpretations of Genesis. Uh, because this text is so important. So you can interpret this text literally, okay? So uh, in a way that I have just mentioned in the beginning, the world was created in six days, okay? And actually we do have uh, early theologians, fathers of the church who think this way. They say God created all the, all the masks to adorn his majesty literally in six days. This is Saint Victorinus. And important theologians such as Diodorus of Tarsus, Theodor of Mopsuestia, but also very important Cappadocian fathers, uh, Greek fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, of Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil the Great, they all seemed to actually believe this and interpret Genesis in this way. But at the same time, it is really interesting that already, look, it is uh, early uh, church, we already back then have fathers of the church, like St. Basil the Great, Ambrose of Milan, or John Damascus, who would say that, yes, 
we should speak directly of the six days as 24-hour periods, but actually they realize that, or they teach, that in fact, universe as such was created instantaneously or ahead of time. And what we find in this description in the Bible, those first six days, is actually a modification of already existing matter. Okay? This is a very important idea that we get as early as you can, as this, uh, the fourth uh, and the eighth uh, century uh, uh, AD. Okay? So uh, then we have. Uh, new theories that came uh, that were developed also already in ancient Christianity. Uh, the theories that would say that we could not or we should not interpret those uh, six days in literal uh, in a literal way, uh, and they uh, say that we can go more allegorically in our interpretation and assume that those. Uh, that one day in this description is not 12 or 24 hours period, but actually it is a longer period of time. So we have many examples of, of this interpretation. So some would say that uh, these are not six days, but 6,000 years. Uh, Saint Irenaeus uh, mm, would claim uh, that it is again, one day would be a 1,000 year, uh, but we would uh, later on find, find those uh, who would extend those periods to even longer, uh, longer periods of time. Okay, uh, so this is a, a possible, another possible interpretation. And to, uh, to, to more and more people uh, on the way within the, during the history of Christianity, this becomes more and more reasonable, this way of interpretation, more allegorical way. They simply look around and they see uh, the pace of changes in the universe and the pace in which, you know, um, plants grow, animals come into existence and die, and they and also the way in which they change, because people were inter, uh, you know, producing uh, various, uh, you know, types of uh, uh, various, uh, uh, you know, uh, breeds of uh, animals and plants during the history. So they could see, for example, how much time it takes, for example, to produce stronger crops or or stronger animals, right? Where deliberately, you know, uh, pairing them in a in a, in a particular way. So they could see this, and they figured out that those changes that happened in the beginning, they could not have happened so uh, fast as uh, as it is as uh, uh, the Bible says. One of the most important, uh, if not probably the most important, uh, interpretation of six days of uh, in the account of Genesis is uh, is the interpretation offered by Saint Augustine, a very important theologian as you uh, probably know. And he struggles with the text of Genesis uh, throughout his life. He uh, writes uh, three commentaries on the six days in Genesis. Uh, I believe at least one of the first uh, two, if not both of them, uh, are not finished. And uh, the third one, he finishes after, I think, uh, 13 years of working on it, of work on it. And he finishes it in year 415. And this is, it is uh, entitled The Genesis at Literam Libri Duodeci. So it is interesting because it says that it's a literary commentary, literal commentary on, on uh, the book of Genesis. And this is actually what Agassi wants to do, although he does, when necessary, uh, engage into more allegorical interpretation. Because as you may know, he is very attentive to the ways in which scripture is being um, interpreted. Uh, he has a very important work on Christian doctrine, doctrine in which he explains various ways from the past up to his time uh, the Bible might be interpreted. So what does he tell us in this work on, the, uh, on six days in Genesis? So he says this, well, let's be honest. If you go to the Bible and you read the account, the account of six days, what we learn from this account is that God made every God made everything together without any moments of time intervening. 
he reads the Genesis, which says, at the beginning, God created uh, the earth and, the he and, and heaven, right? So he says, this is a momentary event, right? Uh, and therefore, we should not think of those six days that follow this uh, momentary event as solar days. Uh, and his argument is very reasonable. He says, how can you have uh, days before there is sun and moon, which uh, produce the rhythm of uh, days and nights, and we know that sun and moon in this description, they come into existence on the fourth day. So how can you have three other uh, previous days without having sun and moon? He says, therefore, you cannot read those uh, six days as solar, as solar days. At the same time, uh, he asks, therefore, a question. Okay, if everything came into existence momentarily, does that mean that all things as we know, all species of things and, uh, and animals and plants as we know, they came into existence momentarily? And here Agassin answers saying, no. And we even, we, we actually learn about it from Genesis itself. Uh, so therefore, he uh, proposes here, he, he goes uh, or he takes a very interesting and important philosophical idea and tool to explain uh, the way in which things came into existence. So he says that God creates this primordial matter, first matter, ex nihilo, and this matter is very simple. There's no plants, no animals, no, co no complex things, just simple matter, elements. And this matter has a potentiality in it. And from this potentiality, this potentiality can be actualized in time. And new things which were not there at the very beginning can come into existence. He speaks about, so he introduces the idea of seed principles. Rationes seminales in Latin or Logoi spermaticoi in Greek. So uh, the idea is that those seed, so it's like, it's, so he, uh, yeah, let's just follow him. He says, uh, this is an idea that uh, he takes actually from Plato and from Stoics, so he's not original here, and he claims that uh, you may think about like seeds, like invisible seeds hidden in matter. So he says that God unfolds the generations which he laid up in creation when he first founded it, okay? So those generations of new entities that will come into existence are somehow hidden in this primordial matter. God created, therefore, once again, all creatures together whose visible forms he produces throughout the ages, working even until now. Trying to explain the meaning of rationes seminales, because it is a philosophical term, uh, not obvious for, uh, not for everybody, at least. So he says that rationes seminales, he says, are like the principle whereby we grow old. We all grow old. And there must be a principle in us, he figures, that, that makes organism to go into this direction. You know, everything, all matter in our organisms, is being exchanged. We know that, and scientists say that every seven years, all the matter in your organism is changed, is new, and yet we die. And so he says there is a principle in us that leads us towards death, uh, and you, you, you don't see it, but it is there. So he says you may think in the same way that there is some hidden force by which latent, that means hidden uh, forms that would uh, come out later into existence uh, are brought into view. So uh, once again, he says there's indeed in seeds, this is just an analogy that he deals here. So there, there's this, uh, you can imagine uh, like once again, a seed hidden in matter, uh, which is uh, actualized and a plant growth, uh, grows out of it. And he says, you can use this analogy in this passage that you have on the slide, but it's actually just an analogy because what he is speaking about here is more basic than a physical seed. It is a metaphysical principle of potentiality that is uh, in matter, that God put in matter, and then this potentiality is being actualized, okay? So once again, uh, we, we refer to his 
idea and uh, uh, look what he says. In the seed, then, there was invisibly present all that would develop in time into a tree. And in the same way, we must picture the world when God made all things together as having had all things uh, which were made in it and with it and with it when they was made. This includes not only heaven with sun, moon, and stars, but also the beings which water and earth produced in potency and in their causes before they came forth in the course of time. So once again, everything was put or created by God, but in potency that can later on be actualized. So this is a very powerful analogy that he builds once again based on the scripture. And I will uh, let you know in a minute uh, why and in what way it is actually based on the scripture, okay? Uh, but first, we may ask a question, well, that sounds, at least for some, uh, in the past and even nowadays, as evolutionary idea, right? I mean, there is matter, it has potency, and that this potency is being actualized, so it is like evolution in a way, evolution of matter out of which, you know, new species come into existence. And actually, there were thinkers at the very beginning after Darwin uh, came out with his book in Catholic tradition, in Catholic philosophy and theology, who are, were struggling with evolutionary theory. They approached it and they actually used the authority of Augustine and this idea of potency of matter, which he and his idea of rationus seminalis, to advocate in favor of the possibility of having both evolutionary theory and Christianity. So the first example is George Jackson Univert, who uh, in 1871 writes a book on the genesis of species. And he claims in this book that, that theistic evolution, which is the idea that God creates, or God, yes, let's call it this way, God creates through evolution, uh, uh, new species, he says this can uh, work in the Christian Catholic tradition, uh, and it is a theory that is thoroughly acceptable to the most orthodox theologians. Why? Because he says Augustine and Aquinas, of whom I will speak in a minute, uh, and a commentator on Aquinas, Suarez, they actually they don't obviously teach about evolution because there was no theory of evolution, but they Philosophy and theology is not against evolution, okay? And their interpretation of, of the Bible. Another example is John uh, Zam, who was a Holy Cross priest uh, uh, who came to the United States of America and worked at the University of Notre Dame, Notre Dame in, in Indiana at the very beginning of that university. And he also uh, was uh, working in this field of uh, science in relationship to theology, and he claims that the most venerable philosophical and theological authorities of the Catholic Church, including once again Augustine and Aquinas, he thinks that their theology and philosophy supports theistic evolution. The last example would be Henri de Dorlodot, uh, who, was, uh, who was a Belgian uh, priest uh, who worked in the University of Louvain, and he claims. Uh, that Catholics are at liberty to accept Darwin's idea of the transformation of the species. And actually, he gives the most extent references to the Genesi at Literum uh, of St. Augustine, which I have discussed for you a few minutes ago. So this would be uh, those who claim that actually, yes, Augustine's ideas are uh, evolutionary in a way. But the truth is, that Darwin uh, knew some of what Augustine claimed uh, about uh, the way in which matter has this potency to produce new uh, types of organisms, and he didn't like it. And there is a reason why Darwin didn't like it, because Augustine cannot be treated as, or his thought cannot be treated as evolutionary. Why? Well, look, Augustine does not hold that one species can arise, uh, arise from another one. Uh, so uh, he, he doesn't say one species transforms and a new comes out of it. No. Uh, he accepts gradualism 
but not evolutionary theory, okay? So the number of those uh, species that are hidden in matter is fixed one for, once for all by God when he created a universe at the very beginning, okay? Uh, so those uh, types of species, once again, are fixed in this matter, but will be actualized in time. So once again, it is gradualism because not everything is created instantaneously, but things come into existence gradually uh, from the potency of matter, but it is not evolutionary uh, idea where one species comes out of another species. Okay. Also, uh, therefore, we have uh, the question of novelty of those unfolding natural kinds of those species. Uh, because Darwin wants to say that there is a possibility that new species come in, comes into existence which did not exist in any possible way. Whereas for Augustine, we would have, again, those species, those latent forms fixed in this primordial matter. So one may say there's nothing new, actually. There's nothing new because everything is already hidden in this matter. It is just that we don't see it. Uh, and it is not actualized. Uh, but it is uh, it is not new. Whereas Darwin would like to say, I want to say something completely new comes into existence. So here are crucial differences. But let's move forward now to Thomas Aquinas. Because Thomas Aquinas has a very interesting uh, uh, ideas. One of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, obviously. Uh, he has uh, some interesting ideas about uh, creation and uh, the book of uh, Genesis and the account of six days. So Thomas Aquinas is aware, first of all, of the more literal interpretation of the fathers of the church that I mentioned at the beginning, and he's aware of the Augustinian tradition, the one that I have, I have discussed later on with the potency of matter in which uh, uh, species are hidden. Before he will comment, comment, comment on that, he makes a very important methodological uh, claim and advice. Look what he says. With respect to the beginning of the world, something pertains to the substance of the faith, namely that the world began uh, to be by creation. And this is something that all saints agree in this. In a way, he wants to say, you cannot be Christian if you don't believe that everything came into existence uh, by the act of uh, God's uh, creation. But, he adds, how and in what order this was done, this pertains to faith only incidentally, insofar as it is treated in Scripture, the truth of which the saints have uh, saved uh, in the different explanations they offer. So by this part of the statement, he says, so the most important thing for you is to believe that God created everything. But then the way in which things came into existence that surround us, particular things, is a secondary thing. And there are actually different opinions, even uh, among theologians. Because as I told you, he is aware of those two traditions. One is the Augustinian tradition, of which Aquinas would say, this explanation, the first offered by Augustine, uh, namely, uh, is more subtle and it is a better defense of scripture against the ridicule of unbelievers. So this is, so taking this approach of Augustine who says, you know, it is really, it sounds strange that everything came into existence Im immediately with all species and everything fixed, I mean, ready, you know, actualized. Uh, and he says, this is a so so Augustine's idea that there is this primordial matter of potency. He says he says Aquinas says it is a good idea and it helps when you talk about with people who do not have faith in God, because when they look at the Bible, uh, from for example a scientific perspective, they they laugh and they say this is crazy. I mean, how can everything come into existence like immediately? And actually, science nowadays would say, I mean, we learned that this is a long process, right? So, uh, so actually, already Aquinas in, in the Middle Ages says, this is a good tool, this interpretation, to talk with scientists, in a way. And then we have the second interpretation, more uh, literal. And he says, it is easier for, uh, to grasp 
for who? For the people who, who have faith, okay? Who somehow cling to the scripture and want to uh, just uh, read the scripture and not necessarily like reaching towards other sources of knowledge. So Aquinas says both of those interpretations are valid in, a, in some ways. And he actually says he defends both of them. There's a space in the interpretation in, for both of them. But he himself, when we think about what he did in his theology, it's clear that he follows more the Augustine's interpretation. What is really interesting about Aquinas in this regard is that Aquinas has a separate treatise on creation and a separate treatise on the interpretation of six days in Genesis, and they are separated in his work, in his Summa Theology. And I think Aquinas does it uh, on purpose. And why is that? Well, let's go first to his interpretation of six days in Genesis, which he does not call the six days of creation, but he calls it the work of six days. God, God's work in six days, and he does it, I think, in purpose, because he realizes that what happens here is this. Like I mentioned before, the creative act of God for him as for Augustine is instantaneous. So it is just the first sentence in the Bible which is about creation. And he calls it opus creationis, the work of creation, which is creation of matter and distinction of heaven, earth, and elements. So what comes out of this first act, divine act of creation, uh, says Aquinas, are most basic elements. Okay, For them, it was earth, water, earth, and fire. Uh, nowadays, you would say, I mean, these were uh, hydrogen and then uh, and, uh, and helium. Okay, And then elements as they build uh, later on. But, but first elements were the simplest uh, elements. And it was uh, hydrogen. Okay, So therefore, uh, going back to his treatise on creation, leaving aside uh, a treatise on, six, uh, on the work of six days, Aquinas would emphasize and say this, creation is coming into being out of nothing, of the most primitive types of contingent entities, which is of the elements, creatio ex nihilo. He would say, therefore, to create is to make something from nothing, okay? And therefore, uh, this is, in other ways, you may say, this is an emanation of all being from the universal cause, which is God. Because nothing, nothingness cannot receive action, uh, so it's not that the God acts on nothingness. No, God, uh, creation comes out of nothing, uh, which in a way is from God because only God exists uh, before uh, creation, while at the same time creation is not God, creation is not divine. But uh, it's another issue that we have to leave uh, for now because this is not the subject of this lecture. And the other aspect of creation, a crucial aspect of creation, of the same act of creation is continual and total dependence of all created uh, things on God. So it is not only that God brought matter from uh, into existence out of nothing, it is also that God keeps this matter in existence. If he had he not uh, kept this matter in existence, uh, it would have fallen into nothingness again. Okay? So creation is this act of God, which has those two aspects uh, which you have on the slide, uh, speaking of divine conservatio, that means conservation of things, keeping them, in, keeping them in existence, Aquinas says that creation in the creature is only a certain, therefore, relation to the creator as to the principle of its being. The being of every creature depends on God, and this is creation, the dependence on uh, God in uh, existence and in what things are. And therefore, if we understand creation in this way, once again, bringing from nothing into existence and keeping in existence so that things do not 
uh, fall into nothingness again. Therefore, we need to realize, and Aquinas does that, that creation ex nihilo, uh, creation as such, is not transferable, which means there is no other being in the universe that can do this. I mean, to do this, to bring into existence out of nothing, you have to be omnipotent, and no, uh, no creature is omnipotent. And therefore, creation, the act of creation, cannot be done by anyone else. And we have arguments for that in scripture, but indirect arguments, at least indirect arguments in scriptures. But also fathers of the church, they say, nobody can create but God. Angels cannot create any nature. This is a reference to Neoplatonism and those stages uh, from one divine, uh, like falling down into matter. Angels were in between, and some claim that angels can create the material world. God created angels, and angels create matter. And uh, fathers of the church, they say it's wrong. Angels cannot create. Only God can create. Similarly, Cyril of Alexandria. It is most contrary to the glory of God if it were to be assumed that other beings could create. It is not right to say that what is only proper to God's inexpressible nature could be found naturally in some created things. Creatures cannot create. Aquinas agrees with that, and he very strongly says it is impossible for any creature to create, either by its own power or as an instrument in the hands of God. So this is important, but it is not a problem in my understanding of things at all with the theory of evolution. Why? Because Aquinas says creation, once again, is just this instantaneous first act of God. What happens afterwards in the account of six days in Genesis is not, is not creation anymore, it's transformation of the matter that already exists. So he follows here, uh, so he says, the second part of the work of six days is the work of, distinct, of distinction, opus distinctionis. God distinguishes heaven and earth and sea and he produces plants on the third day. Uh, the, the author of, the, of Genesis puts plants on the third day because ancients, they thought plants were not alive. Many of them thought they were not alive because they didn't move. They thought that you have to move from one place to another to be alive. Uh, now we know that plants are alive, and Aquinas believed that plants were alive, but he followed the scripture and he says, if the Bible says on the third day, so under this work of distinction, when God distinguished parts of heaven and earth, he already puts there, once again, not creation, but production of plants out of existing matter. So it is not creation ex nihilo, okay? And then we have the opus ornatus, the work of adornment, when God adorns the universe to make it more, even more beautiful with celestial bodies, with animals, and eventually with humans. With regard to humans, though, Aquinas says that we here do speak about creation again, because human soul is created ex nihilo. Okay, so even in the Bible, we have the distinction between the uh, Hebrew terms bara, which means create, and asach, which is to produce, to make. And Aquinas sees this difference, and he uh, makes a reference to Augustine's idea of ratione seminales. And he says this, plants and trees might have been produced, produced, I, I emphasized, in their origin or causes. That is, the earth received the power to produce them. They were subsequently brought into existence in the work of propagation. Similar with fishes and birds, they were produced by the nature of waters on that fifth day potentially. So the water receives the potency to produce sea creatures and birds on, uh, uh, like within the history of the universe. Uh, same with animals uh, whose produ production was potential as well. 
And this is grounded in the scripture. Because if you carefully read the account of the six days in Genesis, God says, let the earth bring herbs and plants. Let the water bring uh, sea creatures and birds. Once again, let the earth bring animals. So we have here a situation where out of already existing matter, things come into, new things come into existence, okay? Therefore, when we ask the question whether creation and evolution are in conflict, we uh, at least may answer, following this interpretation that I'm offering you here, because you may have a different interpretation of the same passages that I, uh, of the same account of Genesis uh, 1, you may, and people have different uh, interpretation. But I'm trying to show you that there, there is a possible interpretation on, on, on which they are not in conflict, and this is an interpretation that is rooted in the entire tradition of the Catholic uh, faith, which goes back actually to the very origin of uh, of the church. So it's not like we are inventing theology or we make you know significant changes to like update it so that it can fit with science. No, I, I mean I'm using you know as you can see theology that goes back many centuries. Uh, because they were not stupid, they were asking those critical questions, they were observant of the universe, they were uh, carefully watching the changes in the universe, So, uh, and that's why they had uh, allegorical and more sophisticated interpretation of the scripture uh, already in the past. Okay, But then there comes another important question. We have said that therefore creation and evolution are not opposed because creation happens once and for all and it is primordial matter and evolution always is uh, changing already existing matter, okay? Uh, so it is not uh, creation in a way. Uh, therefore, an important question comes into this equation, uh, namely the question, can we say therefore that God creates through evolution? Because those who claim that you can have evolution and creation, oftentimes they actually say that we can say that God creates through evolution. Uh, and you have Catholics who say things like that. And I, I know I read many books on uh, uh, theistic evolution, and there are people who claim precisely this. And this is problematic, I claim, because we have read in Aquinas a few minutes ago. He says it is impossible once again uh, for any creature to create, right? And in evolution, uh, creatures are, are engaged. So if you want to claim that if, uh, evolution is creation and that God creates through evolution, you would have to say that God creates through contingent beings, which means they co-create with God. And there are people who claim precisely this, that created entities co-create with God. So I have uh, wrote recently a, a, a journal a scholarly article on this topic, and it will be published, uh, I hope, uh, soon in uh, Theology and Science, the journal uh, in Theology and Science. Uh, and I claim in this uh, article that it is wrong to say that God creates through evolution, because evolutionary processes should be classified, in my opinion, as processes of productio. That is, processes with, within which, once again, an already existing matter is being transformed, giving origin to new types of non-living and non-living entities. So, as such, they belong to divine governance of the universe and not to divine creation. This is a way in which God governs the universe. And yes, God wants there to be completely new species, things that did not uh, were around us before. But once again, they don't come into existence ex nihilo. They come into existence from already existing matter that is being transformed constantly in the, on the course of the history of the universe. Whenever evolutionary processes are characterized as being a part or an aspect of divine creation, I add, we must clarify that this may be uh, said uh, only indirectly, uh, or they may, they, they may be classified as such only indirectly, 
that is in a derivative meaning of this term, okay? Uh, so, like, analogously, we may say God creates revolution, but actually we have to be careful here because creation is bringing stuff into existence ex nihilo, and this can be done only by God. And here's the source of confusion, in my opinion. Uh, cre creation is creatio ex nihilo, once again, plus keeping things in existence. And Aquinas uses various terms to describe it. He says uh, about this conservatio. He says, conservation of things in existence. Conservatio darum in esse. God, after bringing stuff into existence ex nihilo, keeps it in existence. Uh, conservatio darum in bono. God keeps things uh, to uh, to have or to, uh, to to achieve the goodness or to 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 uh, to possess the goodness that is proper to those uh, beings. It is good to a stone to be a stone. It is good for me to be who I am. And God keeps us in this goodness of our uh, of of what we are. And also, if God creates ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo, bringing stuff into existence ex nihilo. Uh, what follows it is conservatio annihilo, uh, conservation once again from falling into uh, nothingness again. This is actually a more modern term. But nowadays, another term that became very popular today in reference to evolutionary theory is creatio continua. But it is a term that was never used by, by Aquinas. He never uses this term. Uh, Suarez, this interpretator of Aquinas, says Aquinas uses this term, but he is wrong. Aquinas does not. And therefore, I think that this term creatio continua is actually confusing, and especially in relation to evolutionary theory, because it suggests that evolution is creation, creatio continua. And continuous being, contingent beings, once again, co-create with God, which I think is false. Once again, Evolutionary transformation, uh, evolution is transformation of already existing matter and belongs to divine governance of the universe. Now, if this is the case, is God engaged in evolutionary transitions? Well, I would say yes. He does not create through evolution, but obviously he works through evolution in existing universe. And he does that through secondary and instrumental causation of his creatures. Here is this very important distinction that Aquinas builds uh, between the transcendental uh, order of causation, which is on top of this slide, where is God as first and principal cause of everything, and the immanent order of causation, which is in the lower part of this slide, where we have secondary and instrumental causes. What are those causes? Let me give you an example of an orchestra. My sister is a musician. I love orchestra and classical music, so this is my example. In orchestra, we have a, a conductor. Uh, let's say we have a symphony. And we have instrumentalists who play their instruments. Okay. So uh, in this analogy, uh, a conductor would be the first and principal cause. And when he conducts, we have instrumentalists who play their instruments, okay, uh, following his guidance. So an instrumentalist, let's say, who plays a flute, my sister is a flautist, uh, so uh, an instrumentalist, she plays her flute, and she, by playing her flute, she does something that belongs to her nature to do. Human being can play a flute. This is something that we can do. Therefore, she is a secondary cause, while the primary cause of symphony is the conductor, in this analogy. But now, the flute that she holds, actually, the flute produces the sound. So we may say, actually, the flute is playing this music, right? And it's true. And the flute would be a special type of secondary cause, which is instrumental cause. It, is, it would be a type of cause which brings uh, something or brings changes, the realization of which lies beyond the scope of its natural dispositions. A flute cannot produce sound by itself. So it is an instrument, right? 
which needs to be played by secondary causes, which is an instrumentalist. So the claim would be that divine action, therefore, is concurrent and not competitive. God does not compete with any causes in the universe to make things happen, to make new species coming into existence. Rather, he works, once again, in already existing matter, through secondary and instrumental causes, so he doesn't have to directly change things in the universe. Uh, uh, he doesn't need to do that because he wants to work through creatures who have causation proper to them. And on this scheme that I am sharing here with you, this would be the way in which God works through evolution, and it is part of his divine governance of, of the universe that guides it towards uh, eschatological fulfillment, eschatological end. And once again, it is not creation, because the universe was created and it is done, and it is kept in existence, which is part of creation, but no new things are created ex nihilo anymore. It is just transformation of matter, once again, in which God, uh, or like for the sake of which God acts through secondary and instrumental causes, with the exception of human beings, once again, where human soul is being created ex nihilo, while at the same time, matter in which, which is informed by human soul can be thought as being prepared through the evolutionary processes. Those processes disposed matter, prepared matter in a way in which, uh, so that uh, this matter could have been informed by a human uh, soul, which uh, was created ex nihilo. Normally, forms, substantial forms of new organisms, they come, they are induced from the potentiality of matter that surrounds us uh, on this scheme. Uh, while with, uh, in case of human beings, uh, God creates so human souls ex nihilo because these are souls which are in the likeness uh, of God, and that is not material, so they cannot be induced from the potentiality of matter. And there are other, uh, you know, um, other, uh, I would say, arguments in favor of why human souls need to be created ex nihilo unlike uh, substantial forms of all other entities. Human beings are really, really weird creatures compared with all other creatures, both entirely material and entirely immaterial. Uh, so uh, therefore my uh, claim here would be uh, to finish this lecture that also human beings, they can come into existence through evolution because through evolutionary processes, matter would be once again predisposed uh, and prepared in a way to be actualized by human soul, which is created by God. So we would be a mixed uh, being in a way in terms of its origin and also in terms of, it, of its end in this world, but let's leave it uh, for now. But in terms of its origin, we are mixed uh, beings because uh, the material aspect of who we are and what we are is prepared by the processes in this world, whereas the 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 uh, the uh, you know immaterial aspect of who we are uh, is uh, it comes from a direct divine uh, act of creation ex nihilo. Okay, so this would be like the basic introduction to this entire uh, the picture that I that I. Uh, have and defend in my writing. I wrote uh, several papers on this. I want actually to, I'm planning to write, uh, to put them together into a book on uh, on uh, evolution and uh, in, within the Thomistic classical tradition. Uh, but let's uh, leave it uh, as it is uh, for now. Uh, thank you for your attention and uh, let's uh, now open the floor uh, to questions if you have uh, and okay you can ask a question in english in polish if you want in spanish or or in italian i think i understand italian already well enough to understand the question in italian. Okay. yes uh 
my question is uh, uh, according to the presentation you give that God created uh, God finished his creation uh, yeah in the very beginning mm -hmm. uh, except that God creates the human soul one after the other that's mm -hmm. the only exception uh, however uh, in, in theology we talk about the new creation mm -hmm. of course there's in evolution I think you present very well that, uh, by the way thank you for the clear presentation that in evolution there's no new creation it is uh, only transformation of what is already existent mm -hmm. uh, although in potency but how about uh, how, how do you see uh, the new creation that is uh, given in in theology or <laughs> in salvation mm -hmm. thank you mm -hmm. thank you very much it's a very good question uh, I, I teach uh, the course uh, on creation, so so it is also uh, part of this course. Uh, and right, there is a difficult question that we have here: uh, whether this universe will be annihilated or whether it will be transformed in what we call uh, a new creation. Okay, and I tend to, so this is my personal theological opinion, shared by many, but there are others who may claim uh, something different. I think that if God annihilated this universe at the end of it, he would act against himself. Because if he, uh, he says uh, that the universe he created is good, so he would act against himself, uh, who is the source of goodness, if he annihilated this universe. So I claim, and I hope, and I claim that it is uh, mostly uh, possible and uh, that God will transform this universe. So the new creation, again, uh, in my opinion, therefore, would not be, again, new matter coming into existence out of nothing. It would be rather uh, the way in which God will, like, finally subdue creation to himself in a way, not like forcing creation, creation would be open to that, so that matter would be, like, uh, uh, open and subdued to the spiritual aspect to 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 I mean as much as possible. So for me the example of Christ who uh, though being material after resurrection in his resurrected body, for example, he goes through the wall and he enters the uh, a room even though that uh, the door is uh, locked and closed. Okay. So that would be that would be the way in which matter uh, is like open to what is spiritual. And I think that would be new creation. And once again, not bringing into existence anything out of nothing. Uh, yeah, so that would be my answer. What can we learn from the French theologian Jesuit, the famous Tihar de Chardin? So what can we learn from him? And what is the relations between today's lecturer and his uh, theology. Thank you. Okay, so this is, uh, we could spend uh, much more time on it here. Uh, we don't have time for that. So trying to make it short, uh, Tayyar de Chardin uh, has a very interesting, inter interesting vision uh, in which he strives to uh, actually uh, to build on the evolutionary theory like an overarching scientific, metaphysical, and theological view of reality. He wants to bring them all in one. Uh, so for one uh, part, it is very interesting. Uh, on the other hand, at the same time, it's very, I wouldn't say dangerous, but it has many, or at least several important flaws and, uh, and difficulties that were noticed by the church, and uh, the church warned about those uh, difficulties of his uh, theology. Okay. Uh, and the principal uh, difficulties, uh, the uh, metaphysical and theological, would be basically the principal dif difficulties are two. The first one is that he has a view of matter which is somehow, which has, he says that, he, that, that all matter in the universe has a subjective whole or subjective aspect to it. 
some claim that he follows panpsychism, that there is like a psychological aspect to everything in the universe uh, on the on a very primitive uh, level, but then it's, it grows, and in his vision it does grow, so the matter complexifies, complexifies, and then human beings come into existence. Uh, so this is problematic both for scientists, this is problematic for many philosophers, and this is problematic for uh, theologians. I think it might be less for theologians, but, but it might be, because uh, because building on this view of matter, his theology, he ends up very close to pantheism, where basically uh, God is present in all material stuff that he created, right? So this is very, uh, that would be, that would be unorthodox, okay? Uh, then his notion of Jesus Christ is also interesting, but, uh, but it has its problems, where Jesus Christ is this very important step of complexification of matter, uh, on the way to this final omega point in his vision. But then he would claim that Christ is evolutaire. I don't know French very well, uh, maybe I mispronounce it, but Christ is also the one who evolves with the universe. And then the question would be, what does that mean? Does it mean that there's a change in God himself uh, through the change in Jesus Christ because Christ is one with his Father? That again would be against the one of the classical attributes of God, which is unchangeability. And eventually, he also has a very difficult, uh, uh, another difficulty uh, with Tayyad de Chardin would be the notion of original sin. He has an idea uh, or a view of the universe where there was no paradise, there was no ideal state of human being at the beginning after creation. Uh, rather, we have this growing consciousness of matter which strives towards omega point through the stage of human being and Christ and, and so forth. And then seeing uh, stands on the way. Actually, actually he, he, he has at some point, uh, he claims that wherever there is matter and universe, there is a possibility for, for, for seeing and, seeing and evil. So it's like, it becomes like another another face of the created reality, which I think might bring him close to dualism, which is totally unorthodox. Uh, and it definitely uh, like makes him to question the doctrine of original sin, the way church teaches it, and question uh, monogenism uh, in terms of the origin of human beings. This is another huge issue for a separate lecture. Monogenism and polygenism. I can have a lecture on that for you, but it's a separate lecture. But Tayyad de Chardin, while the church, especially back then, was arguing very strongly in favor of monogenism, that all human beings come from one ancestor, which is Adam and Eve. And the question, Adam and Eve, Eve or just Adam, this is another question. But he argued against that in favor of polygenism, that it that the transmission trans uh, that the change, the species transmit uh, transformation here happens in the population. So we have like a bunch of first human beings, which the church is still, I think, a little bit skeptical about, if not like entirely skeptical about, but this is another issue. So these are the problems that Tayyar de Chardin has. At the same time, it is a very interesting vision which tries to build a dialogue and it's not against uh, science and it's not against the church. And then uh, it is being criticized both by scientists who wouldn't like to have, you know, uh, spiritual matter, uh, let's say. And it is also criticized by the church, which sees unorthodoxy of Tayyard de Chardin. Uh, he was uh, not condemned, it is important, in 1958, uh, there is uh, the decision that his books should not be uh, sold uh, on sale on, uh, in uh, Catholic bookstores. And in uh, 1962, just before the Second Vatican Council, there is a monitum um, information that warns about theological uh, difficulties of Tayyard de Chardin's works, but it is not uh, putting him on the on index. 
which index of forbidden books was abandoned by the by by the second council, as you know. So he was never condemned, but the fact uh, that his books were banned from those uh, Catholic uh, uh, Catholic uh, bookstores made them extremely popular. He was the most popular Catholic author read at that time, also by non non Catholics and even people uh, who did not believe at all. So it's it's a, it's a paradoxical. Uh, situation, right? Uh, so yeah, so we can learn something from it, but it is like very, very uh, different from what I'm saying here. Uh, you know, it's a different theology. And just one last word: it is amazing how uh, influential it was, and also on many theologians. The more I study this uh, topic and the history of the response of the church to evolutionary theory, the more I am amazed how influential he was. Even, for example, on the Pope uh, Benedict XVI. Yeah. 